where we're up to huh, in the book of Romans. Right, we'll start right from the beginning. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans, when we looked at it last time, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Because, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, in the gospel, God shows us a way to be righteous. He shows us how to be justified, how to be acquitted, how to be declared not guilty before Him in the courtroom of heaven. And He gives us a righteousness that it says is revealed from faith for faith. It is from faith. And so it is a righteousness that is based on faith and not on performance. And why do we need a righteousness that is based on faith and not on performance? Why not just be good? Well, because of verse 18, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. And it goes on to talk about all the ways we have not treated God properly. None of us treat God properly. None of us love Him and honor Him and obey Him the way He deserves. We've all insulted Him and rebelled against Him. And our actions show the symptoms of that in how we treat God and how we treat each other. And all of us are like that. And Paul goes on to show that the Gentiles are sinners and that the Jews are sinners. And so if we face judgment on the last day, judge strictly for what we have done, we would all be found guilty. Not yet, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Not one of us is really righteous. We all deserve God's wrath and condemnation. The Jews thought they could get righteous by observing the law of Moses. But the law can't help us. Can't get right with God by doing all things. Anything. Even all those good things God told Moses. Can't make it up to him. Can't undo what we've done. Can't obey the law properly. All the law does is show us our guilt cannot justify us, cannot declare us not guilty, cannot declare us righteous. Now that's the summary of chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. And so at the end of chapter 3 verse 20 it says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But then we read that God did what we could not do. God showed His own righteousness, His own justice, His own goodness by doing it. And that is, God presented His Son, the Lord Jesus, as a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a, a sacrifice that takes away wrath. And remember how God's wrath was rightly coming upon us for human sin. What Jesus' death on the cross is the propitiation, is what has taken away God's anger for our sins. Because our sins have been punished. They have been rightly and justly and honorably dealt with because Jesus took our place and now we can be acquitted. We can be declared not guilty. We can be justified. As it says in chapter 3, verse 22 to 25, he says, This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then in chapter 4, we double-click the word justified. 
And we saw again that justified is a forensic word. It comes from the law courts. means to be declared righteous. That is to be declared not guilty, to be acquitted. And so when the Holy Spirit in the scriptures talks about justification by faith, he's saying God declares guilty people like you and me not guilty because Jesus bore our guilt for us. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to deserve it. It is a gift from God. And so our job in chapter 4 is not to work towards justification. In fact, we must not work towards it. We must trust God for it. In chapter 4, verse 5, we saw, To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is what gets us justified. But faith has no merit in and of itself. It's, it looks to the object of faith. Uh, the person you put your faith in. That's the important thing. And we trust in God who justifies the ungodly. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. And when we trust in him, we are counted righteous. No need to wait for the final judgment because God has already given the verdict about those who trust in him. God says you are justified. I consider you not guilty. Now and forever. I'm not going to send you to hell anymore. Count you as righteous, good, holy. I know you're not really, but I can treat you that you as you are, as if you are, because you are in my Son. You are united with Him. All His assets become your assets, all your liabilities become His liabilities, and He died on the cross to pay for those liabilities, so all you left to share the assets, His righteousness, His perfect righteous life. It was delivered up because of your trespasses. Raised because of your justification. And so, if you trust God who raised Jesus from the dead, you are declared not guilty by faith in him. And then in chapter 5, we saw as things we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We look forward to glory. We know that God loves us because Christ died for us. And the second half of chapter 5, we saw it is quite reasonable that one person should deal with the sins of many and give us all eternal life because it is one person who, who disobedience of one person who, who, who got condemnation for many in the first place. Chapter 6 we saw we transferred to a new realm under a new boss. We are living now as slaves of righteousness, not slaves of sin anymore. In chapter 7 we saw this new realm means that we are no longer under the law, but we serve God in the new way of the Spirit. And in chapter 8 we are reminded the Spirit leads us to holiness. Testifies we are God's children. Helps us to pray in our weakness. And we know that God is working everything for our good to make us more and more like Christ. And in verse 29 of chapter 8, we know that God foreknew us. He predestined us to be like His Son. And those He predestined, He called. Verse 30, those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So all those blessings of righteousness and faith and justification, all those things are things that God had planned for us way before we were born. And so it's all from God and not from us. And nothing can separate us from his love. And then we asked last week, what about those who are not predestined to receive this blessing? And in particular, we were looking at most of the people of Israel. And that was the very thing that devastated the Apostle Paul. He was devastated. His own people had rejected the Messiah. The majority of Jews didn't believe in Jesus. And there were three questions he raised in the passage. Number one, have the promises to Israel failed? The answer was no. 
God's promises are still there for God's people. It's just that not everyone who is called God's people really is one of God's people. Not everyone who is biologically a Jew is in the true Israel. It's always been like that in Israel's history. And this was still the case now. The true Israel is Jesus, the Messiah, and the Jews who believe in him. And then later on, the Gentiles are added in as well. And it's those who believe, and it's, and it's been God's choice all along. And then we realized, as we read, it was actually, God chooses people to have faith in Christ and therefore belong to him. And so the next question that arose was, is God unjust? And the answer was, no, God is always perfectly just. God's choosing people to be saved, that was not justice, that was mercy. And mercy is over and above justice, you can't demand it, it's only be grateful for it. God will have mercy on those on whom he has mercy, that's, that's his prerogative. And then thirdly, we asked, if, if God is in control in the world, if he's predestining people, can he rightly judge them? And the answer was, yes, he can, because God is God. And we are not. His glory is the highest good. And so in both just, justice and in mercy, he is glorified. And we finished by noting that many of the Gentiles, who were not God's people, have come in to become the true people of God. And well, most of the Jews who were God's people outwardly, only a minority of them were chosen to become the true people of God. And so we saw that from God's sovereignty point of view, the reason for the fact that so few Jews were believers is, well, that's simply God's choice. Why were there so few Jews? That was God's choice. Why are there so many Gentiles? That was God's choice. God is in control. His plans haven't failed. His promises haven't failed. But the other thing we looked at last week was the fact that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both happening in the same events at the same time. Now, look at the cross. And we see evil, wicked men put Jesus on the cross. They are responsible for their actions. And at the same time, God is using the cross to bring good, to rescue people. So, what about the human responsibility side? Last week we looked at God's sovereignty side. This week our pastor says, what about the human responsibility side? How come many Gentiles come in and not so many Jews? What's, what's wrong with the Jews? Why did they miss out? The answer is in verse 30 onwards of chapter 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You see, the Jews believed that righteousness was based on works. They thought they could be saved by observing all the law of Moses, which God had given them in the Old Testament. But remember what we saw earlier. The law is supposed to show them they're sinners. It's supposed to show them they really need a saviour. But instead of that, they're using the law to try and justify themselves. To try and pretend that they're really obedient to the law and they can be saved by obeying it. And they thought they'd be right with God by, by, by following and trying to follow all the things that it says. And, and they rejected the saviour that they really needed. Verse 32 continues. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. A stone of stumbling is, you know, is a stone that you trip over. When you, you fall down, when you trip on it, right? Uh, in Isaiah 8, God had warned Israel that he himself was going to be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling for Israel. The people of Israel were going to be offended by him. They would find it hard to accept him and they would fall down because of him. And so the fact that when Jesus came, who is God, became man, that's not surprising that it happened, isn't it? It, it had been predicted. And in reference to stone, God later says to Isaiah in chapter 28, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That is, it will be okay in the end for those who believe in Jesus. They will be vindicated. And so the reason Israel falls, as prophesied, is because, well, one, they're pursuing a righteousness based on law, and two, because they don't believe. God comes in the flesh and they didn't believe him. If they believed in him, they wouldn't be put to shame. But they disbelieved him, they rejected him, they stumbled over him, they fell just like God had said. Now remember last week we saw Paul's great anguish for the Israelites and once again, in chapter verse 1 of chapter 10, he talks about his desire. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. He longs for their salvation. But he knows that most of them are not saved. And the reason, once again, verse 2, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are zealous. They are keen. They are religious. They are pious. Some of them are even fanatics. They have a zeal for God. But it's an ignorant zeal. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, they are ignorant of the real righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. And instead, what are they doing? Trying to establish their own. Trying to be righteous by doing good deeds. Trying to be righteous by works, law, rituals. And because of this, they don't submit to God's righteousness. They don't receive the righteousness that they would get if they just... Trust in Jesus, the righteous one for them. Because those who believe in Jesus, they are, they are no longer using the law as a means to get righteous. If you are trusting in Jesus, you won't be trying to get right with God by doing good things. Verse 4 tells us, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Those who believe... Don't try and be righteous by law-keeping. Christ is the end of that. And Christians look to Christ for righteousness, not the law. Now Paul says that back under the law of Moses, there was provision for righteousness by observing the law. Verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You obey the commandments, you have life. Disobey, you perish. That was the deal under the law. The problem is, Paul's already shown back in chapter 3 that no one keeps the law properly. 
because we are sinful, we'll keep on sinning. The law keeps throwing up our sin. And yes, we will, if we obey God's commands, we will have life by them, but we won't obey God's commands. And so, we won't have life by the law. And the problem is not with the law, the problem is with a sinful human heart. It's not like it's an inaccessible law. It's not like it's unreasonable law. Keep your finger in, Deuteronomy, uh, in, 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 uh, in Romans 9. Come with me to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. It's page 206. It's our Old Testament reading. I want you to compare Deuteronomy 30 with Romans 9. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. Have a look with me in verse 11 to 13. Moses has given the law. This is what he says. For this command I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? The law was, was given to them freely. It was, it was right there in front of them. Wasn't there something unreachable? They had to go in heaven and down the sea and try to get them. They had it. There's no excuse for disobeying it. Keep your finger there. Come with me to back to Romans 9. Because there Paul uses the very same structure of thought, the very same pattern of speech, but notice there's a difference. There's a contrast in the content. Because what he's talking about here is the righteousness of God that comes by faith. Verse 6 of Romans 9. This is what the righteousness based on faith says. Who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Who will descend to the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Do you see what he's done? He, he's changed, isn't he? The approach of the law is that. The approach of righteousness by faith is that. Where you had the law in Deuteronomy, now he puts Christ. Once you thought the law could save you, now you look to Christ. Because Christ is the end of the law as a way of trying to reach righteousness for those who believe. But the similarities are there. Like the law, Christ is given to us freely. He's not something that's inaccessible or unreachable. Christ comes to us in the gospel and the gospel is given. There's no excuse for rejecting it. Israel might be ignorant of the gospel, but it's not an innocent ignorance. It's a culpable ignorance. They're ignorant because they, they want to be. It's not because the gospel is unclear or inaccessible. It's as accessible as the Old Testament law was. Now the parallel continues. to go back to verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The word there is the command of the law. Chapter 10 verse 8 of Romans. What does it say? Well, what does it say? It, there is the righteousness that comes from faith. What does the righteousness that comes from faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. So again, the command of the law in Deuteronomy is replaced by the word of faith, the gospel in Romans. So just like the word of the law was in the mouth and heart of Israel, the gospel is in the heart and mouth of, of those whose righteousness comes by faith. Because in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, see the heart and mouth motif comes back, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's keeping the motif from Deuteronomy, injecting it with new content. 
Of course, believing and confessing with your mouth, they go together, isn't it? You don't get one without the other. Believing the heart leads to confessing with the mouth. And being justified, that has been declared not guilty, and being saved, they go together. You don't get one without the other, but if you're justified now, you will be saved on the last day. And God pulls out his wrath against you and sin. So you can't, you can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. What Paul is saying is, look, the gospel word actually saves. Does what the law couldn't do. Like the law, it's in our hearts, it's on our lips, but this actually saves us when we trust in Christ. Salvation is by faith, it is, it is by believing, not by working. Now, Moses had concluded at the end of Deuteronomy 13, uh, in verse 15 onwards, he says, look, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I'm commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his commands and his statutes and rules, you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you do not... Uh, you, you would not hear, you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, you will surely perish, you won't live long in the land you're going over the Jordan to possess. So I call heaven and earth as a witness against you, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life. Obey and live. Disobey, perish. That's the law. What does the righteousness of faith say? Verse 11 of Romans 10. Next. Just keep on reading parallel together. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes. And then it goes on to say there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his righteousness on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Incidentally, that's a quote from Joel, which we studied just recently. And you remember in Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that was the name of Yahweh, wasn't it? And here the Lord is talking about the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Just another little piece of evidence that Jesus shares the identity of God. Not the main point of what he's saying. So, following the law means attempting to get right with God by, by works of obedience. But believing the gospel, calling on Jesus as the risen Lord, is, is salvation by faith. And Paul says the gospel is accessible. Like the law, with the law, Moses gave it to Israel. What about the gospel? How do you access the gospel? Well, verse 14. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Ah, okay, so it's a sequence. In it. Work it backwards. You've got the someone is sent, and there is a preaching. Because of preaching, there is hearing. Because of when there, as a result of hearing, there is believing. Leaving, next step is calling upon the name of the Lord, and then you're saved. The people are saved when they call on the name of the Lord. They call on the name of the Lord when they believe Him. How do they get to believe Him? It's because they, they hear the gospel. And how do they hear the gospel? It's because someone tells them. And someone tells them because they've been sent to do that. So when the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 52 of his prophecies, predicting the future preaching of the gospel, uh, he extols the ones who are sent. Uh, Paul quotes him at the end of verse 15. Uh, 
How can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Now, if you go to Isaiah 52, what is the good news in the gospel that's being proclaimed? It's your God reigns. The Lord is returning to Zion. God has redeemed his people. God has comforted his people. See, the good news is that God has come to rule his people, to save his people. And the gospel of Jesus is that God has come to save his people by dying for them. He has come to rule them as their king and lord. And while that prophecy was initially directed to, G to, to, to Israel, it is fulfilled in, in Jesus. And, and, and Israel was then meant to, to obey the gospel, to call on Jesus, to, to bow the knee to him. But verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not called upon the Lord Jesus. And that is not surprising because, you know, the very next chapter is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a chapter of the Bible which arguably has got the clearest prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And where it talks about how he would die for sin and take the punishment for many. And you know how the chapter starts off? It's in the words that Paul gives in verse 16. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Yeah, the proclamation of the gospel was predicted, but, but unbelief was predicted as well. So go back to the scheme. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling on the name of the Lord. Hearing is meant to result in believing. But it doesn't necessarily, does it? Israel heard but by and large didn't believe. Of course, the other way around is, is always true. If you believe, you must have heard. That's why it says in verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. If you believe, it means someone's told you. Okay. Now, back to the Jews. What's the problem? Where was the break in the chain? Yeah, people were sent, people preached. Had they heard? Well, verse 18, Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now Paul's quote here is from Psalm 19. We actually talks about the heavens proclaiming the glory of God. But just like the general revelation from the heavens, the sky, the sun declares God's glory, the gospel has gone out universally as well. It's a, it's a public thing now. It's way out in the open. So there's no excuse for not believing. It's, it's, it's way out in the open there, just like Revelation, general revelation. See? But think again about the gospel going out universally. Should Israel have expected the gospel to go out universally? Well, verse 19, did not Israel understand, or perhaps better translated, did Israel not know? Did, did God tell them this would be the case? Well, actually, yeah. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses gave Israel a song to remind them of the covenant as a witness against them because they knew, he knew they were going to sin against God, that God was going to punish them. Punish them. And, and part of the song was that in verse 19, where it says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Already known. Gentiles are going to come in. Then he quotes Isaiah in verse 20. Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, 
All day long I've held my hands out to a disobedient and contrary people. Disobedient people. So should Israel be surprised that Gentiles are coming in? They shouldn't be surprised. Should they be surprised that the majority of Israel wasn't listening? They shouldn't be surprised. Their, their rejection, their rebellion, the gospel of the Gentiles, actually it's, it's all there in the Old Testament. Everything's still according to plan. The word of God hasn't failed. So, summary, why are most Israelites unsaved? Well, you could answer that question from many different levels. Last week from the view of God's sovereignty, ultimately from his choice. This week from the point of view of human responsibility, they missed out because they were relying on works. Tried to get right with God by obeying the law. But it wouldn't work because of sinful human heart. And the second reason is because they didn't have faith. There's the evangelistic chain, sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling on the Lord, but the chain is broken because they heard, but they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. But, God is still sovereign. He's in control. And all this is predicted in the Old Testament anyway. So, what are the implications for us? Three things. Number one, don't be like Israel. That is, don't fall into the trap of the law. Pursue righteousness from faith. Going back into a law-keeping kind of mentality, trying to reach God by doing good things, by being religious, by going to church, by, by, by helping others, by putting money, by whatever it is, trying to, trying to get right with God by doing things, is the most common trap, isn't it? Every religion tells you you do good things and you get right with God. Or do good things and you get to the name. You pray five times a day, you go and have your, your, your pilgrimage and then you got a chance. You know? Or you go and you know, do these prayers, you go and do these things. And you... No. The tendency of the sinful human heart is always to try and make it a performance thing. We always got to try and prove ourselves. But we are saved by grace. Through faith. All it is is trusting in Jesus. That's the only way. Stop trusting ourselves. Stop looking at our performance. Stop trying to do it by works. Trust in what Jesus has done, not what I have done. All I can do is confess Him as my Lord and believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you will be saved. And then you will realize that even that is a gift from the hand of God. It's grace all the way. Secondly, remember the sequence. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling upon the name of the Lord. How do you get to believing? The step before believing is always hearing. Believing comes from hearing, nothing else. And so we have to proclaim the word of God. We have to share the gospel. The gospel has to go out. People need to hear who Jesus is and what he has done for us, people need to hear that you have to trust in him for salvation. Someone once said, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That's one of the most pious sounding bits of nonsense, isn't it? Of course you have to use words. How can you preach a message without words? uh, Now, you can't believe the gospel unless you've heard it. You live out the gospel, you, you live out the implications of the gospel, but 
if anyone's to be saved, they're not going to be saved by just looking at you in your life and saying, well, wow, you're such a good person. Oh, I'm saved. <laughs> if they see you're a good person, they might be more interested to hear what you have to say, but they still need to hear the gospel before they're saved. They still need to know that they are sinners and Jesus died for them. They still need to know they have to submit to Jesus. They can't find that out by just looking at you. Somehow or another, they must hear before they can believe. That is the nature of things. And finally, trust God's sovereignty, isn't it? He's always in control. He's still carrying on his plans. What looks like the biggest disaster? God's all, God's promises, finally sends the Messiah, and instead of accepting him, they kill him. It looks like a huge, huge, huge disaster. But actually, it's still part of God's plan. The ongoing rejection of Jesus by Israel. Oh yeah, what a, don't worry. Still part of God's plan. God hasn't lost control. Next week we'll see why God ordained it as we look through the uh, Romans, uh, Romans 11. But whatever happens, even in the big, what looks like the hugest disasters, the hugest things going off the rails, actually, God is still in control. He knows what he's doing. If you belong to him, he loves you. He's shaping all things for your good. And that you become more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that, that, that we are sinners. And we confess that we have hearts that have a tendency to sin. And we confess that if we were to um, try and be righteous by the law, then, then, then we would never make it. We thank you that you have given us your Son, who lived that perfect life that we never lived. Thank you that he died to take our place. That he hung there on the cross to bear our curse. Thank you that you have united us with him by faith. So that we share his righteousness. And he has taken our sin. And we thank you so much for that. And we know that we could never attain a righteousness of our own, but only have your righteousness because of him. Father, please help us always remember that, never to fall back into doing what Israel did and trying to establish our own righteousness, trying to establish some kind of standing for ourselves before you, instead of relying completely on your son. And Father, please have mercy on those who have not seen your righteousness in Christ, our friends and family members who may be so zealous for religion but it's based on ignorance who may be trying to establish a righteousness of their own but are rejecting the true righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus have mercy on them we pray 
And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will grant us opportunities to tell them about the true righteousness that can be found in Christ. May they hear the message. And we pray that, um, that in your mercy that you will cause them to believe. Help us to keep trusting you, Lord. Sometimes it's, it's hard to know what you're doing. Sometimes things and circumstances appear uh, quite disastrous in our own eyes, but we know that, that, that you have everything under control. Help us to hold on to that, uh, even when it doesn't look like it. Help us to trust you, because we know that you are the God who raised the dead, and your purpose is never fail. Help us be praying in Jesus' name. Thank you.